you are receiving this transmission, you are reclaiming the faith with Phil Baker on the Fourth Watch Radio Network. Welcome to episode 80 of Reclaiming the Faith. I'm your host, Phil Baker. Before we get into part two of my interview with David Bursow, I want to give you uh, an opportunity to hear a small excerpt of the last song off my upcoming album, Babylon. This song is called Always, and it features Elizabeth Powell on vocals with this duet. So check this out. Like I said, that's a song called Always featuring Elizabeth Powell off my upcoming album that should be released in a couple of weeks. All right. Well, uh, episode 80, like I said also earlier, is part two of my interview with David Brousseau. And in this interview, he discusses the idolatrous origins of America and what sets his new commentary on the gospel of Matthew apart from the others. You can find links to all of David Bursow's teachings and books on the Scroll Publishing website, scrollpublishing.com. And if you thought part one of this interview was good, part two gets even better. If you're blessed by this episode, please consider going to iTunes and leading, leaving a rating and review there. That'll help others find interviews like this um, a little bit easier. Also, on my website, philsbaker.com, you can find links to my Patreon, uh, my music, my book, blog, and all of that. So please go check that out, philsbaker.com. Well, I'm blessed to be a part of Justin Falls Fourth Watch Radio Network, along with BDK of Omega Frequency, who I do a monthly Q&A show with called Ready With An Answer. And if you have any questions about what we talk about here on Reclaiming the Faith or on Omega Frequency, anything on the Fourth Watch, please consider... uh, yeah, writing us an email. You can either you can email me at email philsbaker uh, at gmail.com. All right. Well, without any further ado, let's go ahead and get episode 80 rolling. Your book in God We Don't Trust was just quite an eye-opener for me uh, as it details so much of America's early history that 
academia has failed to convey to the masses and like i'm a i'm a pretty big history buff because my mother is a huge history buff uh she's a member of the daughters of the american revolution uh we're, we're texans and uh so she's a daughter of the Republic of Texas as well. Like um, <laughs> one of our relatives was Sam Houston's divorce attorney. Uh, very proud of that kind of stuff, you know, uh, have a red, white, and blue yes. room <laughs> in our house. Um, but as much as I thought I knew about American and, and Texas history, um, man, that book, just with using so many primary sources, it just, it, it floored me. Um, what, what God or little G gods, plural, um, do you believe America has historically trusted in? And then what steps, uh, do we as American Christians need to take in order to repent of that idolatry? Okay. The, the, uh, and let me explain a little bit on that book and God, we don't trust. It was written, you know, we homeschooled our children and, so many of the textbooks we were using Christian textbooks uh, they had this teaching that you know America is God's country and it was founded you know on all of these Christian principles and uh, they just lifted it up you've probably read the book or seen it the light and the glory uh, maybe it's not around it so much anymore it was a big book in the 1980s among evangelical Christians and just portrayed the um, English settlers here as these saints who, who did these things. And there were people um, who had, you know, very good motives. But the problem was, I'd say two gods in particular stood out. One was Mammon. And that even in New England, uh, the first generation of like Puritans and the, the pilgrims, uh, I think their main motivation was freedom of religion, why they came here, but they very quickly got swallowed up in the pursuit of riches, which was easy to do in, in America. In England, it was hard to climb out of the class that you were born in, but in, in America, in hardworking, um, you know, you could go, there were no limits to, to where you could go. And in Virginia and most of the South, uh, tobacco was the crop that uh, they found they couldn't do very well growing just food crops. And so tobacco was the big money maker. And yet even King James, um, you know, condemned something Christians should not be involved with. He didn't make a law forbidding it. Maybe it would have been good if he had of. And so Virginia, I mean, tobacco, that was actually became the, the currency. You paid for things with, you know, so many pounds of tobacco and, and things like that. And the pursuit of that led to then grabbing more and more land from the Indians uh, because tobacco tended to um, deplete the land pretty quickly with with how the methods that they were using back back then so they had to keep getting more and more land and so this had nothing to do with serving god now most of these people were professing christians but yeah their god was mammon now in new england where the soil wasn't very good and it wasn't uh i mean you can grow tobacco there but um 
it would not have been the big money maker in, in New England that they very quickly uh, started what became known as the Golden Triangle. And they would ships coming from the West Indies, the islands there in the Caribbean, would bring sugar or molasses to New England. Okay, they would take that. These were the, you know, the children of the original Puritans. And I mean, it was just in one generation, they had turned to uh, away from thinking about worshiping God to, to making mammon. So they would distill this and make rum out of it. And then they would take the uh, rum to Africa and sell it there, exchange the rum for slaves uh, at a handsome profit. Then they would take the slaves to the West Indies and sell them there for a lot of money and uh, buy raw sugar there and then bring it back to New England and the triangle would start over. So it was just a wicked, I don't, there's no other term you can use, a, a wicked trade, uh, both in uh, distilling rum and, and uh, uh, making your profit out, out of uh, promoting drunkenness and that, and then to be involved in the slave trade and the human misery that that brought about, plus distributing rum to the people in Africa and all the evil that that brought there. And, and so, um, I mean, these were major evil things. And so to imagine that this was some country God was smiling on, uh, I'm not, it certainly wasn't necessarily the most wicked country in the world, but it was as wicked as anyone else. I don't know that you could point to another country that was more wicked. Um, in other words, America was not special at some big godly home that uh, this was God's nation. No, it was just like the rest of the world, people out serving the God of mammon and serving power. They were more powerful than the Native Americans. So, hey, we want more land. We will just take it because we have stronger weapons. We're uh, better equipped and we can just take their land. So, yeah, I'd say those two gods of might makes right and mammon, the the pursuit of mammon. And again, I, I don't see this being anti-American. I mean, I, I appreciate that I was born in this country. I've seen a lot of other countries and they're not more godly than, than the United States. Yeah, this isn't an anti-American rant. It's just as Christians, we need to be realistic that there is no such thing as a Christian nation, and the United States never was one from day one. Um, man, those are, I, I, I think you're right, right over the target um, with money and power. And um, the descent that um, those two idols took uh, these Americans down toward is just Oh, it's scary. Uh, it reminded me of uh, the saying, like, sin takes you further than you're willing to go, keeps you longer than you're willing to stay, and costs you more than you're willing to pay. Um, yeah. I was also thinking about uh, how those, those two god, gods um, are often justified for the sake of bettering the country. Um, like if we don't have money, we can't, uh, we can't get the things that we need. We can't have security for our family, and we need more power. Especially if you're thinking in like a political 
political realm. Um, we need the right people in power to, to pass the right laws. Um, and if we're not taking part in that, we're, we're, we're sinning, uh, in a sense. Um, and one of the, one of the phrases or turns of phrase that I've heard, and, um, I believe there's a message on this in scroll publishing is that like all that, and I don't remember who said it, but, uh, all that, evil needs in order to prevail in this world is for good men to do nothing. H how would you respond to that? Um, that statement from a Christian trying to justify uh, these worldly uh, pursuits? Yeah. The irony is, yeah, I heard that statement a lot from Christians. I'm, I'm from Texas myself. Yeah. Uh, I wasn't born there and, and I grew up on military bases. My dad was in the air force. So um, I'm no stranger to the military. I don't have a Texas accent because, like I say, I, I lived on military bases, but primarily in Texas, and, and that's where I spent most of my life. You probably remember seeing, or I guess you're still in Texas now? Yeah, I'm in um, Houston. My dad was in the Air Force also. Okay. So um, I remember so many bumper stickers I would see that would say, God and guns made this country great. And it's like, wow, well, guns did. I don't know about God, but but uh, um, it, it said a lot. And I remember Christians telling me when I was sharing with them the early Christian view of war, uh, they would quote that. I think the quote is maybe from Edmund Burke. Yeah. Uh, don't, don't hold me. Yeah. Um, that all that's necessary for evil to prevail is for good men to do nothing. Well, when Christians are quoting that, they're basically saying that prayer is nothing. Hmm. You know, I mean, you're, you're basically saying that, well, yeah, praying, I mean, no, that, that can't stop evil. I mean, you got to have guns if you're going to stop evil. Prayer can't, can't do that. And it's such a contrast to the early Christians who firmly believed that it was their prayers and the power of Jesus Christ that brought peace to the Roman Empire, uh, Empire. because uh, prior to the birth of Christ, I mean, you had all of this endless fighting among all of those countries, and uh, Rome was always at war, and, and lots of civil war uh, among the Romans, and then Jesus comes, and, you know, the world calls it the Pax Romana that was ushered in about the same time that Jesus was, was born, and uh, for 200 or more years, you have this period of relative peace, and the Christians continually tell the Romans, we are the reason you are having this peace, because we pray for the empire daily. We pray for the emperor, not in a political sense, but for God to bring peace, for God to hold back the demons who stir up war. And it was effective. You know, Rome had this peace, and then when Christians embraced war in the fourth uh, century, during the time of Constantine and beyond, well, the Roman Empire fell, I mean, within a century after that. So that should have been a lesson to Christians that when God wants to bring peace and wants to protect us, he doesn't need our swords to do that. His power is enough. And so when we think, well, we've got to have a strong military and we've got to have guns and all of this, or the whole world is going to fall into evil. 
we're basically saying that God really isn't in charge, that God doesn't have the power to hold back these evils, that only guns and, and other weapons can, can do that. So it shows that our, our faith is somewhat faith on paper. It's not something we fully believe in. Mm. So like, what, what's maybe one or two steps that someone could take uh, to begin the process of repenting from that misplaced faith? Well, obviously, is uh, getting rid of our reliance on on power of learning to pray and really believe that God can end war where he wants to. He, he's not going to usher in a world without war uh, unless that's his will, and it does not seem to be his will. But yeah, really having that that faith in that, that we don't, instead of putting it in the political process or in uh, guns, of, yeah, putting that time and our energy in, into prayer, number one. And then as far, that, that's as far as this God of power. And as far as the God of mammon, yeah, really taking a look at our lives. I mean, for me, um, here I was a practicing attorney. Now, I was not a trial attorney. I, I mainly did title work. I was an oil and gas attorney, uh, like I say, mainly doing title. Um, but I did handle a number of lawsuits, um, suing different people, suing different oil companies and stuff like that. And when I read the early Christian writings, wow, I, I found that not only would they not take their brother to court, they wouldn't take anyone to court. They turned the other cheek when they were wronged. And, well, I had to do some soul searching. What was my profession even pleasing to God, what I was doing? And and after talking it over with my wife, um, I decided I just needed to totally get out of lawsuits. I could keep doing title work because there's no, you're not doing any adversarial um, uh, actions there. Uh, you're not doing anything to harm anybody. Um, and so I could do that with a completely clear uh, Christian conscience. But yeah, I saw I had to get out of the lawsuits, which were very profitable. I, I mean, that's that's where the big money was in was the the lawsuits. That yeah, I mean, I could make a decent living just doing title work. And, and then after a while, I realized I I didn't need to work full time. I I needed to cut back even the title work uh, and give more of my life serving Christ and serving God's kingdom and work just only as much as I needed to support our family because that's something the early Christians talked about, that um, they didn't talk about their secular work as a vocation, that this was, uh, you know, their calling in life. Their calling was to be a Christian, to serve the kingdom of God, and secular work was something that they did as a responsibility to provide for their family and to be able to assist others, but their real vocation was being a servant of the kingdom of God and doing whatever they could do to promote the kingdom of God, either through evangelism, uh, through showing love, through acts of mercy to other people, being a peacemaker just in local matters, uh, person to person on that sort of basis. So, yeah, I, I would call every American to take a look at um, how they spend their money. Are you in debt? You know, credit cards. 
I mean, here we're the richest nation on earth, and and yet Americans are up to their uh, necks in debt. It's like, wow, we're not even content with the riches we have, but we have to covet beyond what we even have and, and buy things we don't have the money to buy. So those are some of the things I would challenge your listeners to, yeah, get out of debt. Don't don't take on debt for consumer things. I mean, it might be reasonable to take on debt for a mortgage for a house. Most people don't have the money to pay cash for a house. But most other items, yeah, if you can't afford it, you probably don't need it. Wait until you do have the money to to get it. And look at how few hours you might have to work to support your family rather than to how much overtime can you put in so that you can have more and more money. That's good, man. Um, you were talking about the need to, your need to spend more time focusing on serving the kingdom rather than um, uh, doing your uh, work as an attorney. Um, and one of the, one of the most recent um fruits of you serving the kingdom is uh, releasing this historic faith commentary on the gospel of Matthew, um, which I just ordered a couple of days ago. Uh, why, why did you choose okay. Matthew to be your first commentary? And what do you think sets this commentary apart from the others? You know, interestingly, that is probably the question I've been asked most is, is why did you pick Matthew? And, um, it surprised me that people have asked me that. I'm glad you have, because like I say, that's on other people's minds too. To me, it's just the, the logical one. In, in fact, if I were being thrown in a, a prison because of my Christian uh, walk, and uh, I could be allowed one book of the Bible to have with me to read in my jail cell, it would definitely be Matthew. Uh, simply, it's because it contains more of Jesus's teaching than any other book in of the Bible. So if we want to hear Jesus Christ, if we want to hear what he called the gospel, what he preached, then yeah, Ma Matthew is obviously the uh, starting point. It is the book I mentioned earlier. It is, it is the book the early Christians by far quote the most. Luke is second and it's a distant second. And it would it would be the book that contains the second most teachings of Jesus, uh, as far as quantity. Uh, they quote Matthew actually three times as often as they do the book of Romans. So yeah, Matthew was their book to go to to explain Christianity, to look at living the Christian life. And they saw the Sermon on the Mount, not not Paul's epistle to the Romans, but Jesus's Sermon on the Mount as the core teaching of Christianity. And so Matthew is the book that contains that. And so, and it, it's the, it was the first gospel written. I, I know um, modern liberal so-called scholars say that Mark was, but, but that's based on total nonsense. I, I have a, a section in my commentary that addresses that myth that Mark was the first. The early Christians uniformly say, Matthew was the first one. It's why it's the first book in our Bibles. Um, there are reigns in the order they were written, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then, and then John. And that's the early Christians who gave that order to them. And it's the early Christians who gave them the name gospel. They didn't give Romans the name gospel. They gave Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And um, anyway, so 
Yeah, Matthew is, if you had to go with one book of the New Testament to know what Christianity is all about, it definitely is is Matthew. So to me, it was a no-brainer to, to, uh, to start there. Now, how this commentary is different, um, I mean, commentaries I've had an issue with for many years because, well, two things. One, they're not presenting the historic faith. They're presenting um, the teachings of the reformers, how they looked at Christianity, uh, not how Christianity was understood in the beginning. And then secondly, they don't use primary sources. They make up things. And I, and I know that sounds, someone hearing this it would be thinking, oh, surely, David, you don't mean that. People, no commentary would just make up something. But they do. I mean, commentators literally make up stuff or they copy from someone else who, ma who made it up. Uh, they almost never use primary sources. They have few footnotes to any any of the things they, they say. And they themselves, since they're not using primary sources, that is, they're not going back to the early Christians or the early Jewish writers, they don't know if the historical information they're giving is is true or not. They're taking somebody else's word for it. And like I say, if something sounds good to a 21st century audience, then they'll just make up something and, and say that. And I'll give you an illustration. A, a number of commentaries, now this is jumping to uh, 1 Corinthians, but 1 Corinthians 11, that where Paul gives the instructions about the head covering, that um, the Christian woman's head covering. And so many commentaries say, Oh, well, that applied only to Corinth because the city was full of prostitutes. And if you weren't wearing a covering, then people would mistake you for a prostitute. Now, that's just made up totally, totally out of the blue. I mean, no early pagan writers say that. None of the early Christians say that. I mean, it just <laughs> someone pulled it out of thin air but it sells. I mean, people like to hear that in the 21st century because then they can just throw out that commandment. Oh, that was something temporary because of a unique situation in, in Corinth. And yeah, I could go on for several hours just on uh, totally fake things that are in most commentaries. So when I wrote the commentary, I wanted to be able to footnote everything I said. That number one, this is what the early Christians believed. It's not necessarily what David Berceau has, you know, started believing. It's, it's not my teachings. It's what did they believe in the beginning, number one. And then number two, I'm going to quote directly from them, and I'm going to footnote it so you can check up on me and see, did they really say this? Is David taking the quote out of context? And so I don't know of any other commentary that does that, you know, in that fashion. Uh, if there was one, I would have just, you know, bought that. It, it it was a lot of work doing, you know, the Matthew commentary, but I did it because I saw the need. There there needs to be something like that out there that people can see the historic faith. Do you have a projected date for part two of that commentary? Well, <laughs> I'm sorry. Yes and no. Now, no, I know. I'm glad you asked me <laughs> what happened. You know, I, I mentioned everyone, you know, was asking me, why did you start with Matthew? You know, and and 
and so I'd say, well, what should I have started with? And everyone, you know, I said, well, we're anxious to see what the early Christians said about Romans, you know. Mm. And so what I've decided to do, I'm going to leapfrog over the second half of Matthew. I'm going to do Romans next. And my projected date for that would be fall of next year, of 2021. And then I'm going to go back and do the second half of Matthew, which, you know, in a sense sounds illogical, but I do see this hunger that people want to know what did the primitive Christians believe on Romans as compared to what Luther taught about it. And so for that reason, yeah, I'm going to leapfrog and then come back to the second half of of Matthew. So the second half of Matthew, hopefully the fall of 2022, uh, I will have that if, if everything goes as planned. Oh man, that's really exciting. I'm going through Romans right now with my mentor. And uh, yeah, I, I was I was looking at some of the, the verses that are, are quoted by the early Christians, and it really surprised me how little they quote, I think it's Romans 8, 38, 38, that whole section about like nothing in life or death can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. But that's that's quoted uh-huh. so frequently <laughs> in modern American churches. Um and they just didn't pay a whole lot of attention to that. Um, kind of like John 3.16, they don't really quote a whole lot. It's just interesting. Yeah, John 3.16, which is the most quoted verse nowadays, you'll hardly find any quotes. And right. when they do quote it, they quote the entire passage. They don't just pick out that verse. Yeah, um, yeah that really struck me. How, I mean, you, you will hardly ever find John 3.16 quoted. I mean, that was just another verse to them, but it was the whole passage. When you look at that total passage in John 3, Jesus is, ends up saying that people, most people hate the light. And so they, they follow the darkness because they don't want the light. And the light wasn't just him. It was him and his teachings. And so when they saw the, the uh, passage about God so loved the world, they certainly believed that. But they realized it was a whole lot more. Believing in Jesus was not just, oh, I believe he died for my sins. It was, I believe he is my Lord. And if I believe in him, that means I obey him. In fact, quite a few of the early Christians say that to believe is to obey. That there's no such thing as believing in Jesus unless you're obeying him. If you don't obey him, then you don't really believe in him. That's really good. Um, very challenging, obviously. Um, well, as we're kind of wrapping up, what is a final word of encouragement or advice you'd like to give our listeners? Um, it's it's primarily a Christian audience that listens, but there there are a decent amount of um, skeptics that also listen. Yeah, I think my exhortation would be to really build a strong, obedient, love-faith relationship with Jesus Christ. Don't be content with, I believe in him, I invited him in my heart, um, you know, at one time in my life, and be satisfied with that. Jesus is not satisfied with that. Um, Be a fruit-bearing Christian, that you're producing godly fruit in your life, You have a genuine relationship with Jesus, not a fake one, but a relationship where he is your Lord and he is your teacher. 
that you go to him for teaching, that is to his to the writings we have, to see what his will is in our lives. Don't imagine what his will might be for you. Go and read what he taught um, in the Sermon on the Mount and in his parables and you know all through the four gospels to see what Jesus really wants from us. So that would be, I think, the big thought I would want to uh, to leave with your listeners. Make Jesus the Lord of your life, not just your Savior. And then secondly, and this is a distant second, I mean, without a living uh, relationship with Christ, the historic faith in itself doesn't mean anything. I mean, you can have all of the head knowledge and and that means nothing to Jesus Christ if you're not living for him. But don't be satisfied to just accept whatever your church teaches, uh, no matter what church that is. Go back and see for yourself what the historic faith was, what it still is. It is still the same faith. It, it doesn't ever change. And uh, go to the primary sources. Read some of the early Christian writings for yourself. Don't just take my word for it or, or someone else's word, but read them for yourself. See what Christianity was like when it was just a few decades removed from the Apostle John. And um, But you have to start with a blank slate. I mean, you're going to have to expect that it's going to step on your toes and you may have to lay a lot of things aside. I, I had to lay aside just about everything uh, I was raised with and then a lot of the things I had converted to as an evangelical and, you know, just lay those aside that, hey, this isn't really what the New Testament is teaching and embrace what the historic faith was, which is the biblical faith. It, it is all the most literal way to read the New Testament. So that's the, the exciting thing. It brings us back to the Bible in the end. Man, that's great. I was just thinking three three resources that that have been fantastic for me to get into the early Christian writings. First, your your dictionary of early Christian beliefs that you edited is so so helpful. Just to, if you just want to search different topics, and um, then I got the um, the CD ROM version of the Anti Nicene Fathers. Which I, I mean, I talk about this every single episode. I encourage people to just spend five dollars and buy it. And it's so easy to search, um, like generally using the King James version of a verse that you want to look up. And um, man, that's been such a blessing. And then uh, what you compiled with uh, uh, Justin's teachings and Mark uh, Mark Felix's uh, writings when you you put together the I think it's we don't speak uh, great things we live them. Um, that, that was, that was fantastic. So those are three resources I'd encourage people to go check out if they want to dip their toe into the water. Um, but thank you so much, David, for taking your time, uh, to answer these questions. Um, this is just, man, this is such a blessing for me. Thank you. Crop comes, what you gonna do? You can build bigger barns like your heart tells you to. You'll amaze the neighbors, make them go ooh and ah. You're in the big time now, building bigger barns. Yeah. 
Small 